Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. SaaS, consulting, courses, e-commerce. If you ask any of the top marketers in these industries, they'll all give you the same advice. Grow your email list. And sure, you could run ads to a lead magnate or offer a discount for joining the list or any other standard strategy. But I'll tell you what's working surprisingly well right now. Setting up a referral program for your newsletter. I know of people who are spending weeks and thousands and thousands of dollars coding their own homegrown system just to have a newsletter referral program. But listen, Sparkloop is a referral tool specifically built for newsletters that allows you to get set up in just minutes, and you can try it out for free for an entire month. Check them out at sparkloop.app EIM. One more time, that's sparkloop.app EIM. On the show today is Chase Diamond. Chase is the co-founder of the email marketing agency Boundless Labs, and I wanted to bring him on because since launching Boundless Labs in June of 2018, not so long ago as of this recording, they've helped clients do $50 million plus in email attributable revenue. This guy lives and breathes email marketing for e-commerce. So you'll hear about how he started and grew an email travel series from zero to over 500,000 subscribers in just 10 months all the mandatory email campaigns and flows you need to have set up for your store, and the Black Friday, Cyber Monday playbook he uses for all of his clients to cut through the noise and get results. Okay, so to start out, did you ever think that you would be doing email marketing for a living? No, I, I really didn't, to be honest. I had no clue what I'd be doing. It certainly wasn't going to be email. Hmm. What, what did you want to do when you were a kid? Like, what were some of the things that you thought maybe uh, you could see yourself doing or maybe that you just pursued because it was fun or you had a, a unique opportunity? Yeah, I think like any other kid or teenager, right? I wanted to probably be a professional athlete or a firefighter or something cool, something that was heroic or something fun per se. Um, that or, you know, I've had Crohn's disease since I was 13. My mom always stressed upon me getting a job that paid for your health insurance, right? So I thought I might be working for some company that offered health insurance. So that's kind of what I grew up thinking um, I was going to be doing. Hmm, That's interesting. I I was actually reading uh, one of your Twitter threads where you were talking about sort of the timeline of your life and all the sort of different events that have gone into getting uh, you to where you are today. And you you mentioned that you sort of taught yourself uh, guerrilla marketing to raise awareness for Crohn's disease, actually. Um, Did that, was that something that you sort of just took upon yourself to do or did someone ask you to do that? Yeah, it's funny. Like when I when I talk about doing guerrilla marketing, these things, it's all like in hindsight, right? Like I was doing, you know, mm. cold calling friends and family, right? I was throwing fundraisers at restaurants, you know, I was recruiting friends and family to go to the walk and raise money with me. So all the things that I was doing, right? Like, you know, referral programs and fundraisers and, you know, taking out newspapers ads. Like to me at the time, like I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just doing all these things that my parents told me were like possible. And also things that I would like research and just test and try. Um, so more kind of like putting the fancy word of doing guerrilla marketing on it in hindsight. And now that I actually know what that entails at the time, I was just a really ambitious kid that wanted to try to, you know, conquer this disease and help others conquer it as well. So I tried everything at my disposal. Um, and I actually did some cool stuff, not knowing or intending to. Yeah. Yeah. And you eventually basically you joined, uh, the board, I think, as one of the youngest members of the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. Um, what what was that like as a as a kid? Yeah, so from 13 to 14, I was you know pretty sick and pretty ill for the entire year. It was pretty bad. And then at mm-hmm. 14, upon becoming 
feeling better. I took it upon my 14 year old self to want to take on the world and raise awareness and raise money for this disease. So from 14 to 16, I basically did everything and anything I could um, for the charity itself. And after about two years of kind of, you know, showing my worth and kind of showing that I'm going to do this. And even though I'm a kid that I can actually make an impact. So at the age of 16, I became the youngest board member and it was from 16 to 22 that I served like the six year kind of board term, the maximum that you could do. And in hindsight, it was probably one of the best things for me um, professionally. Um, At the time, again, like as a 16 year old kid, you don't care if you're networking with the CEO of a big bank, or you don't really care if you're hanging out with the CMO of a big healthcare company. Right. But at the time, like all these people I was on the board with were very legitimate business folks in Orange County where I live. Um, Mm -hmm. And and just through them, I guess, technically mentoring and kind of nurturing me, I learned a lot about ways to communicate. I learned a lot about strategies and tactics. Um, So yeah, for me, just to be really a sponge to absorb all this knowledge from people that were, you know, 10 times further along in their career than I was, was really incredible. Yeah, it's it's a pretty pretty unique experience. Not everyone gets to say that they got to do that. They got to be a part of it, um, especially serving for for that long. You said it was six years, right? Yep. Yeah, six years. Yeah. Um, so from there, I would love to, you know today uh, you're the CEO. You own an agency that focuses primarily on email marketing for e-commerce brands. But like, could you walk me through all the different uh, milestones and events that happen up until where you are today? Yeah, so uh, started with Crohn's, got interested in marketing there. Again, didn't know that you could actually make money from that. So um, when I was like at the end of high school, beginning of college, I wanted to start a t-shirt clothing company, right? Like every other kid, like all my friends. Um, But what I realized was like, you know, my friend over here would sell five or 10 t-shirts a month. And a friend over there would sell 10 or 15 t-shirts a month, right? And no one was making big bucks back then, right? But they were making, you know, $50 here, a couple hundred dollars there. And I was like, hmm, I have all these friends that are starting t-shirt companies. I really want to start one too. But what if I started more of like this marketplace where I had all of our friends' t-shirts on there and everyone can kind of promote it together. So I did all the work on this platform. I got tons of friends and people involved and on it. And then it never launched. And the reason was I was so hung up on the fact of like, how do I automatically split transactions? So that way people trust me versus all 100% of the money coming to me as Chase right? Like as a 18 year old kid. Um, And and that was the the reason that was about 10 years ago, right? So like around 20, 2010, that, that business actually never launched, right? I did both the website and all these things, but it never actually launched. Um, And again, obviously I wish in hindsight, I had figured out ways to get around that, or I wish, you know, that I didn't let that stop me. But again, that helped me build a website that helped me recruit people, like all of these skill sets, like as an 18, 19 year old that I learned um, through, through failing. So Again, that's not necessarily a milestone, but it was a lot of growth and trajectory in the right direction. And then within um, college, you know, I played college soccer. I was in the fraternity. I was in all the business clubs. And on top of all that, I had to work to help pay for my, my tuition. So I probably had six, eight, maybe 10 internships throughout college. Some, you know, some semesters I'd have two internships at a time just to make money and really hustle. So it was really through a lot of those internships that I figured out the things that I did and didn't want to do. Um, I tried like SEO and I tried, you know, influencer marketing and I tried, you know, email marketing and I tried or- organic social and I-, I tried all these things and I really fell in love with email marketing in particular. So upon um, graduating college, I got an offer to work at an ed tech company and basically they had a platform that connected, you know, people around the world to 
a database of about 1.5 million essays, term papers, and AP book notes um, that they charge a subscription for. So you'd pay, let's say, $30 a month to get access to this entire library. The problem that they were facing though was people would come once a year for a month, you know, buy a subscription, and then they'd cancel, right? They had a lot of churn. The product wasn't sticky because you know, when you're writing a paper, you want to use them, and throughout the rest of the year, you, you don't. So literally, my job role and title was to build a platform that was sticky. That was literally all I did. I didn't necessarily have a title. I was the only person on this company out of you know 40 or 50 people that was working on this kind of isolated project. Um, you know, I kind of hacked it together. And as it showed traction, I started getting people on the team to buy in. And we ended up building this platform that connected students at college campuses to others in their classroom to make learning more collaborative. So long-winded, that's basically saying if we went to the same university, whether we knew each other or not, we could collaborate on study guides, we could share notes, we could create in-person study groups and whatnot. So we scaled this platform to hundreds of thousands of users within a relatively short period of time, all on the back of cold email. So grabbing email addresses from you know, college directories and then also to organic Facebook groups. So I realized that when I was in college, I used Facebook groups for a lot of communications, whether it was to find out about parties, whether it was to learn about sports, um, whether it was to buy textbooks, right? So I know that students at all these universities congregated in these groups. Um, so I kid you not, I literally had the company buy me 300 burner phones and we were making tons of fake Facebook profiles. Again, I, I hate always admitting this out loud, <laughs> um, but it worked. But like we were making profiles of attractive females. Um, you know, my friends would let us borrow their photos and we would pretend that we went to this college and we'd join the Facebook groups. We'd promote this thing and it just caught on like a wildfire. Um, so that was, you know, one experience with like cold email and kind of organic social really doing well. Um, in between like that was a full-time job. And then my next time full-time job, I bought a dating site called uh, Bernie Singles, which was for people that supported Bernie Sanders. Um, you know, I personally don't care one way or another about Bernie Sanders. It was just kind of an opportunity to yeah. kind of build a case study, to be able to get clients for like a, an agency I was building on the side um, and kind of from buying it. And, you know, through the, all that process, we were getting millions of people to the site every couple of months, the site would crash. It was not built to scale. You know, it was me and a couple of buddies that bought it. We had no idea what we were doing. We bought it for like $5,000 in an auction. Like it was just such a crazy experience and seeing like the power again of um, Facebook groups like this one, like ballistic and like wildfire in Bernie Sanders Facebook groups. And then a lot of PR, this was on like Stephen Colbert, Ellen DeGeneres, like you name the publication or the or the uh, platform, it was there. Um, so I did that and then, sorry, really long-winded, once to go work for a, a YouTube oh, yeah. competitor. Um, they raised like $10 million, there was like six of us. That was a crazy experience. Um, the platform that we were working on was getting 30 million monthly unique visits a month. So like, it was just like insane growth to be a part of that. And I got so burnt out of commuting um, from Orange County to LA to that job that I just quit. I was like, I'm so burnt out, I'm spending three and a half, four hours of my day, every single day commuting. And I just got exhausted. And then from there, I built basically a cold, basically an email travel series where cold email again came into play, where we scaled it from zero to half a million subscribers in 10 months, largely on the back of cold email. So 150,000 to 200,000 of these subscribers came from us grabbing their data from Instagram and sending them highly personalized emails. And then where I am today now, I basically run an e-commerce email marketing agency. And we have kind of recently merged with another company that does paid social for e-commerce. Um, and we have about 40 to 50 employees and about 75 to 85 in clients. 
So long-winded, that's like most of the milestones. I love it, man. That's that's a great walkthrough. I appreciate that. To, to hone in on one thing really quick on the dating site, you mentioned that uh, you know you got a, a ton of press coverage and everyone was talking about it. Like, was that something that just sort of organically happened and it got picked up, or were you actively pitching these different uh, sites or you know hosts or um, influencers in the space? Yeah, a bit of both. Um, through posting these Facebook groups and them catching so much attention, there were certain like reporters and certain outlets that were in these Facebook groups because them personally. They supported Bernie, right? Or maybe they were in there because they wanted to, um, you know, learn about things happening and to, to cover. Um, so initially, we got a lot of really small publications, like you know, local places here and local places throughout the country that you never would ever hear of. And then as we saw, right, like oh wow, like a little bit bigger now, outlets are picking this up. We then had a PR guy that was already on board when we acquired the company. Um, he just went totally ham on reaching out to all the biggest players. And it was as soon as like one of them picked it up, they all wanted to cover it, right? right. So we went from small, which, um, you know, they reached out to us because they saw us. And then some medium was kind of a mix. And then the large ones, after we, we landed a few whales, all the other ones picked it up. So it was kind of a hybrid. Hmm. That's pretty fascinating. And then on the, uh, the email subscribers for basically like the travel series, um, that's, personally, it's the first time I've heard someone building an email list through cold email from Instagram, like where did one, where did the thought come from? And like two, how did that actually work? Cause I would, I would think personally that a lot of them wouldn't be responsive or engaged, but I guess that's not the case. Yeah. So, um, we basically had identified when we first started the business, um, like who our ideal user was. And because Instagram is so visual in nature, it was the predominant platform that we had focused attention on. And obviously we personally both love Twitter today you know, this probably never would have ever worked with like with Twitter users also, right? The, you know, it's a lot more text-based on Twitter than, you know, video and photo, you know, Facebook, great and whatnot, but like not really easy to kind of communicate and find people other than some ads. So for us, when we were kind of just going through all the lists of platforms available, we, we decided to hone and really own a single platform. And in this case, it was Instagram. So we were, you know, buying and building um, Instagram accounts. So we had, a, we had purchased probably about 600,000 to 700,000 followers across a handful of couple like viral travel accounts. And then we were building out kind of more niche micro communities. So we'd buy like a viral travel account and then we completely wipe out all the photos. We'd come change the name, the handle, and we'd, we'd migrate it to like a, a tent diaries account for people that want to sleep in their tents. We'd do like a van life diaries account, right? For people who want to sleep in their vans. We'd have one for luxury travelers. So through kind of that process as well, we took this audience that we bought from about 600,000 to or about 700,000 to about 2.2 million total followers. Um, about 1.4 million of those were actually unique followers. So we had doubled the actual following in terms of unique people. And then people would kind of self-identify with our main account plus one or two others, right? So they might follow the discoverer plus the tent one, or they might follow the discoverer, which was the, the travel series um, plus the luxury one, right? So they would mm -hmm. kind of join multiple communities. And when we noticed a lot of people we were communicating with and interacting with, um, they all had email in their bio back then. And this happened to be a lot more like influencers, micro-influencers, and people just frankly thought that they were influencers, even though not to be rude, they had no influence, right? They had 100 right. followers, 500 followers, right? There were people like you and I that just wanted to kind of connect. And that's the reason that people responded so well is they had their email in their bio because they wanted to be contacted. They want sponsorship mm -hmm. deals. They want to connect with other like-minded people on Instagram, so that's why it works so well is because all these people's emails were the emails that they use 
it's not like your throwaway email on Facebook. If you do like a lead ad that would get in, right? Like my, my EDU. And I think that's why it worked really well is the fact that these people were like striving to kind of connect with others. And we had such a, you know, unique value proposition and such a unique approach to it that I think people really were able to get behind it. Hmm. What, what did the actual email uh, look like? What did it say? Sort of how, how did you pitch it in a way that actually, you know, was highly personalized and got them to engage? So the way that we acquired emails was either a hashtag that people posted with, an account that people followed, or a geolocation that people tagged. And in addition to that criteria, we knew their username, we knew their follower count, we knew how many people they were following, we knew how many posts they made, we knew kind of info on all their last posts. So I had basically like this database of like everything that you can grab public from Instagram, right? Even your bio text, right? Like, you know, I host a podcast or I, you know, live in wherever you live, right? I live in Malibu or I live in Orange County and I do this for a living, right? So we had all of this info readily available. And then we were just using that with an email. So for you, right, it's like um, came across your, like, or hey, Corey, or hey, Corey Haynes, came across your Instagram photo, right? We'd, we'd, we'd mention your username in the email. We'd mention a ha- hashtag that you posted with. Then within the email, it's like, hey, Corey, I just wanted to reach out. I came across your hashtag travel photo. Um, I wanted to invite you to join our Facebook group with 30,000 other like-minded travelers. It's free to join, um, share your photos, learn tips and tricks, et cetera. So one of our call to actions was as simple as, hey, join our Facebook group. And then as soon as the Facebook group popped up, we'd ask you three questions, one of which was, what's your email, right? So we had about 40 to 50,000 people join three different Facebook groups we had. So that was 40 to 50,000 emails of people actually technically opting in. Um, Other things that we would do is say, for example, we were gonna feature um, a place in Hawaii. We would grab all the data from people that had lived in Hawaii or visited Hawaii and said, hey, Corey, I came across your hashtag Hawaii photo. Wanted to let you know that we're actually featuring an addition in the coming weeks on this. By submitting this, you have a chance to be featured across our network of hundreds of thousands of followers on Instagram, hundreds of thousands of subscribers, right? Um, you know, submit your tips and tricks, where to stay, when to go, what to eat, you know, what do locals do, what do tourists do, right? So that was another call to action. And on the type form, it's like, by the way, by entering your email, you're actually consenting to receive our email edition, right? So we are getting tens of thousands of people to fill out forms. We would send people to giveaways, right? Hey, Corey came across your hashtag, you know, Seattle, Washington photo. Wanted to let you guys know that we're actually doing a giveaway for people to travel down the coast to, you know, Southern California. Enter to win four nights, five days, right? For free, right? So we were getting tons of people to enter this way. So we had tons of different call to actions that were all free to join, um, sending people to the main landing page, et cetera. And depending on the actions that people did or didn't take, we'd follow up. Hey, Corey, you don't want to sign up for our main newsletter? Not a problem. You're probably going to want to sign up for this giveaway. All right. You didn't want to sign up for this giveaway. You're probably going to want to submit content, right? So we would hit these people mm-hmm. with one attempt and it would work. We hit other people with four attempts and it'd work. And then sometimes we hit people six times and it didn't work, right? Yeah, that's, that's pretty fascinating. Um, so eventually though, you left sort of that world behind and you started to focus down on email marketing and you mentioned how you, know, you sort of figured out what you didn't like to do, what you did like to do, and eventually landed an email. But you know, there's been... Um, there's been a lot of buzz, especially in the last, you know, uh, 10 years, even the last five years about, um, influencers and virality and brand, and especially even a lot, a lot of the paid side with Facebook ads and Instagram ads. But so what I'm wondering is like, why email, what is it that, that gets you kind of fired up about that space? Yeah. So through like some of the internships I did in each of the businesses that I went through, right. The, 
the education platform that connected students on college campuses, the email travel series, um, and a couple others that I didn't mention that were a lot smaller. Um, really the core theme there was email, right? So whether it was cold email in terms of acquisition, which is pretty rare on the B2C side, um, but then I, I literally spent an entire year in 2017 building this email travel series where it was a newsletter and whatnot, right? So I really fell in love with like the power of email to both acquire and retain and convert users. Um, and then when I made the transition to kind of the more traditional email marketing world away from the cold side, more opt-in based, um, I just always have been really interested with the ability to capture someone's attention if you can get them to open their email. And what I basically mean by that is like, Corey, if you're on your Facebook or you're on Twitter, right, you'll see hundreds of tweets, right? If you scroll down your timeline, you'll see ads, you'll see videos, there'll be, I'll post a tweet, you know, your mom will post a tweet, your friend will post a tweet, your wife will post a tweet, like who, whoever it is, right? There's all these distractions going on. However, within an email, if I can get you to open it, sure, you have other distractions, right? If you have kids, if you have all these other things to do, but within the email, it's just me and you. Like you're looking at my content. If my content's really good, I can kind of capture your attention and ultimately your spend, right? So I can get your attention for two seconds if my email really sucks, or I can have your attention for a minute, three minutes, five minutes. So with this travel series we built, the reads were typically three to five minutes. So we'd have people literally in our email reading through for, for three to five minutes, which is really powerful. So that's what I really like. The fact that like email is one to many, but in a way that feels very much one-to-one, you don't have to see the likes and you don't have to do the comments, right? Like you got to make and form your own uh, realizations. You got to have your own biases and opinions based off of what's in your head. You're not going to be kind of jaded by someone else that hates this or someone else that loves this. And that's really what I love about email. Yeah. And you must see tons and tons and tons of uh, sort of email accounts, right? Between different brands, um, whatever that means, whether, you know, whatever software they're, they're using or, um, or, you know, the strategy as a whole. So I'm wondering like when you get a new client, what's, where's the first thing that you focus on? What are the low hanging fruit or maybe the quick wins or things that you're kind of going through the checklist and saying, uh, and, and cross-referencing to make sure that they, uh, start off with the right foot? Yeah. I'm going to call this my party trick. Like I can't do anything else. Cool. This is probably like the only cool thing I could do. Um, and again, this is, this, this is kind of give or take with about 90% certainty. So I could literally ask you, Corey, how much of your revenue comes from email? And by you giving me kind of the range, I could, without even seeing your account and know the things that you're likely doing and likely the things that you're not doing. So if you were to tell me there's, there's typically four, four options. Option a is I'm doing zero to 10% of my revenue from email. B is 10 to 20. C is 20 to 30, and then D is 30% or more. So depending on which bucket you give me, in my head already, my, my brain is running with like, okay, zero to 10%, probably missing a ton of core flows, for sure has no advanced flows, probably could be better optimizing an email collection form, probably could be sending more campaigns per week, probably not hitting the right segments, right? And again, like some of these are pretty general statements where it's like pretty easy to be right. But again, like that, just by knowing that before I look at your account, I'm already in that frame of like, cool, let's, let's confirm these biases that I have that I just mentioned to see how that works. You know, if you're at 10 to 20%, okay, you're probably not missing as many core flows as you were before in the smaller bucket. You're probably still missing a couple. You still probably don't have too many advanced flows. There's still probably an opportunity to improve the campaigns in terms of frequency and the content, probably a better opportunity to hit the right segments. And there's probably, you know, still an opportunity to increase your email collection, right? So 20 to 30%, okay. You probably have all the core flows in place. Maybe you have a couple advanced ones. Which ones are you missing? Um, you're probably sending a good amount of campaigns per week. How do we actually work on what you're sending in terms of the content itself to make that perform better? 
how can we get a few more opens as a percent? Um, you know, how do we try, you know, different forms for, you know, collecting emails or survey questions or revenue, right? Um, and, and whatnot. So these are kind of some of the things that I think about. So again, when I first look at an account, I'm always looking initially at the percentage of revenue coming from email. And then more mm -hmm. granularly, what percentage is that coming from campaigns versus a flow? And a flow is basically synonymous with an email automation. Oh, 100% of your revenue is coming from campaigns. You haven't even started flows. Okay, easy, low-hanging fruit. Right. Let's build out the welcome series for non-buyers. Let's build out the abandoned cart. Let's build out some post-purchase. Um, mm -hmm. Or all the revenues coming from flows and you send one campaign a week or a few campaigns a month. All right, let's work on increasing that frequency. So those are kind of some of the things that I think about. Hmm. Is it possible to have too much of your revenue coming from email? Like for example, if you're uh, you know, at 70%, does that mean that you're possibly leaving money on the table on the paid social side of things or even on the organic, you know, word of mouth side of things? Like um, it, it, if it's at the higher end of the spectrum, especially does that also tell you maybe about some of the areas that they're missing in other channels? Yeah, so that's a great question. And what we basically notice with email revenue is it typically lags by a couple of weeks or about a month or two if someone's spending a lot of money top of the funnel. So say mm -hmm. you know, you're doing 20% of your revenue from email today and you really ramp up your paid spend and you're spending way more than you've ever spent, right? You know, you might see in the short term that email revenue as a percentage decreased to 15%, although the overall dollars from email month over month is going to increase. However, it probably won't be until like 30 to 45 days out that you actually see that email revenue come back to 20% and then maybe another month or two out, hopefully come to like 22 or 24%. So that's kind of how we think about like email revenue and spend. And yeah, if you're doing, you know, 75% of your revenue from email, it probably means you're not pulling other levers as strong, right? You're probably not doing enough paid acquisition. Um, so I think to your point, like I'd say most of our clients, we try to aim for 20 to 30%. Um, when clients come to us, they're typically at five to 10%. So we still have some clients that are in wow. that bucket and we have other clients that are doing as much as like 50 to 55% of the revenue from email. And again, like it is common for them to spend a good amount, but the, the amount of spend every month is more or less stable. It doesn't necessarily increase, you know, a ton. Um, so yeah, I think trying to get email between that 20 to 30%, maybe 30, 40% is healthy. If you're at 70 or 80%, you're probably over indexing and over leveraging email. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting point because I think for a lot of people, you know, they're, they're always trying to figure out like, okay, what's the benchmark and where should I be at? And maybe sometimes they can get even a little bit convoluted of uh, you could go up to the 60, 70% range and like, wait a minute, is this actually a good thing? Um, but wh why do you think, you know, you mentioned that about, uh, you know, normally when a client comes to you, they're at about the 5% range. Like, why do you think so many people are leaving money on the table with email marketing or just don't have, you know, so they don't have the, the resources or the skills and expertise, um, just the time itself, like what, what's holding brands back from really investing in marketing and getting up to where it should be reasonably? Yeah, honestly, I think it's all of the above. So we work with about 50 clients right now on the email side. And I think like we could probably bucket each of those into all the reasons you mentioned. So mm -hmm. I think one of the things when someone has an in-house team, um, there's a few things that happen. Again, this isn't always, but a few things that we see happen is they're, they're dragging someone that's supposed to be doing like social or some other, you know, community or paid or SEO, something other than email, right? They were not hired to do email, but email has kind of got looped into their bucket because it's an afterthought, right? So they're spending 90% of their time on paid acquisition and 10% of their time on, on email, right? So that's, that's one use case. Another use case of an internal team and not driving a lot of revenue from email 
um, is typically, right, they want to just do it really cheaply. So they'll hire someone that's kind of a junior that's just learning on the fly. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that, um, but it's going to take time, right? It's going to take six months, a year, year and a half for that person to really get their skill set underway. And a lot of times brands that are kind of trying that, they get frustrated at three or six months and then they're just like, oh, email doesn't work and they'll throw in the towel or they'll just be like, okay, maybe we shouldn't have gone cheap on this. Maybe we do need to find an agency. And that's when someone like us steps in. So that's on the internal side. Um, on the other side, right? Like they might be working with a freelancer or an agency. That agency might be really, really large where like email is not a core offering of theirs either. So it's kind of just something that was baked into the retainer with everything else that they're kind of like, half-assing um, or, or again, like maybe it's a newer agency, newer freelancer. There's so many different reasons. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it, everything come back to like knowing the fundamentals and being able to spend the time. Email is not set and forget. It. And I think a lot of people have that conception of like, I'm going to build these flows once and then I don't ever have to think about them again. And that's definitely not the case. So I think it's a mixture of time and expectation, expertise um, and whatnot. Yeah. So when you're, when you're first onboarding a new client, you know, what are the expectations that you're trying to set for them um, as far as timeline goes or performance or the benchmarks that you're trying to get them up to? Um, like, what is the process that you take them through in order to see uh, them living up to the potential that you see that they can have? Yeah, we really do treat clients like on a custom kind of case by case basis where hmm. if a client comes into us at like a 1% of revenue coming from email, we're not going to ever quote them and say, we're going to get to 20% of revenue from email, you know, in three to six months. Now for, for them, right, it's like, okay, maybe our goal is actually try to get you guys to 10% in three to six months, right? So our, our goal and our, our hope with every client was, was within three to six months to try to get them to that 20% of revenue coming from email. But sometimes that's not really realistic. So we have since kind of over the past like six months, really gone more custom where it's like, you know, 1% to 20%, like that would be fabulous, but that's very unrealistic. Let's go from one to 10%. And then we can kind of go in the next three to six months from 10 to 20%, right? Um, or if someone comes in already at 10 or 15, it's like, great. I think the 20% benchmark is realistic and doable. So we always try to set realistic expectations up front. We turn away a lot of business, frankly, if someone isn't the right fit for us. So the right fit for us is a brand that's doing north of a million dollars in terms of online annual revenue. Um, they typically have to be having at least 10 to 15,000 subscribers on their list. Um, and they have to be using Klaviyo or have to be open to switching and migrating to Klaviyo. So for us, that's a really great fit for us to, again, not 100% of the time are we hitting those things, but I'd say eight to nine times out of 10, we are hitting the goals that we set out because we are setting the benchmarks and because we're having certain constraints in place on where a client needs to be. Yeah. So I'd love to get into some of the email campaigns and sort of, you know, not spilling the secret sauce, but really trying to dig into uh, the expertise that you do have within the space. Um, so maybe we can start here with like, what are the different types of campaigns that you're setting up for clients? Um, and obviously, you know, to get the nomenclature just crystal clear, the campaign would be like a one-off kind of broadcast, right? Scheduled out yep. to the list. Yeah. And then the flow would basically be the email automation, which takes place off of a behavior and a trigger. Um, right. So um, yeah, so when we work with clients, we handle both campaigns and flows, you know, depending on what, you know, clients pay us for, basically everything comes down to a number of emails per month. Um, that will really dictate how many emails go towards campaigns versus how many emails go towards flows. And then also too, depending on like how much a client has done already. Um, if they don't have any flows, right, we might shift kind of in the beginning, some of the weight towards doing more flows first and then less campaigns. And then over time, right, they might equal out 
And then over time, right, we might be doing more campaigns and less flows, right? Really just depending on like the balance of where our client's at. Um, in terms of like content for campaigns, right? Like we're sending traditionally two to four, maybe three to five campaigns a week for most of our clients. And that really kind of goes between um, content as well as selling. So things like education, whether that be like a blog content piece or like a product kind of education piece. Um, other things are like flash sales, right? We're recording this kind of in the middle of November, right? So Black Friday, Cyber Monday is really kind of for, on the forefront of my mind, right? So that's going to be obviously very discount promotion, sales heavy, um, leveraging follow-ups and reminder emails, last chance emails, using countdown timers within emails. So again, like um, every single campaign, we try to differ in terms of like going back and forth between content and selling. And some emails might have both within it. Um, but yeah, so like product launch emails, blog content emails, flash sales, holiday campaigns, current events, right? Those are some of like the popular categories that we hit in terms of campaign content. And then on the flow side, right? Like, you know, we focus on both pre-purchase as well as post-purchase. So pre-purchase are things like the welcome series for non-buyers, the abandoned carts and whatnot. Post-purchase is things like customer thank yous, customer winbacks, upsells and cross-sells. So those are kind of like the buckets and the things that we focus and we kind of go back and forth between for clients. Um, certain clients lend themselves to certain flows. So if you have like, for example, um, you know, makeup or supplements, right? That lends itself to what's called a replenishment reminder, which basically is an automated reminder after three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, however often people should be repurchasing, basically reminding and incentivizing people to purchase again. So that way they don't ever have to go a day without the makeup or the multivitamin or, or whatever it might be. So that lends itself kind of nice to that. Other companies have subscriptions, right? So that might have its own flow where you wouldn't necessarily have a subscription for an apparel company. Maybe you could have like a subscription box, but like more common would be subscriptions for some of the things that I mentioned, like topicals and consumables. Yeah. Well, there's a whole bunch to dig into there, but I think one of the things that came top of mind for me first was how do you know if you're sending too many emails, uh, especially on the campaign side of things? You mentioned usually you're kind of trying to fit into that three to five emails a week per range. Um, do you ramp up to that automatically? Uh, do you or do you ramp up to it slowly or do you get there automatically? Like, how do you know if you're sending too many or too little? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, the benchmark that I use is a 20% open rate on a campaign. So hmm. the second that you pick should allow you to straddle that 20% line where you're maximizing the people you're hitting. Um, and then you're not kind of hitting too many people that you might have deliverability issues and whatnot. So it's picking the right segment. And obviously to hit to send three to five campaigns a week, you'll probably have to send it to multiple segments or else people might get, you know, the three or five campaigns, plus they might get another one or two flow emails, which essentially could mean they could receive a daily email, which is probably not what they signed up for. Um, so in terms of making sure that we're sending the right number of campaigns, we'll start with one per week. We'll monitor things like the open rate, the click-through rate, and then we'll also look at things like customer support tickets, we'll look at the unsubscribe, the market spam, the bounce, et cetera. If all those metrics look healthy, right? The un unsubscribe is low, the open rate is 20% or higher, the click-through is healthy, customer support tickets are good, um, we'll send two per week, right? And we'll kind of look at the same things. Two per week, everything mm -hmm. looks great. Three per week, all right, we see a slight dip. Four per week, we see a big dip. Then we realize, right, like, are, we should go back and forth between two to three campaigns a week. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. Are you, are you using um, like a, a week as kind of like a, a time range for testing or is it two weeks, three weeks? Um, like how long do you usually give it to really test out, you know, if it's too much or too, too little? Yeah. It depends on the data, right? It depends on like how big people's lists are. Right. So 
that's kind of the hard thing sometimes. Like a lot of the lists that we're dealing with are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands and millions. So for us, it's really easy to get data like in a heartbeat and in an instant, right? Like with some of these clients in a week, we could see how this actually performed because, you know, if we mess up, you know, our clients could get hundreds, if not thousands of support tickets. Um, and if we could also look at the metrics too and see, is this number significant based off data? However, with smaller brands, right, that have a hundred people, a thousand people, 10,000 people, it might take them a couple of weeks or a month to really get a sense of like, what does this data actually look like? So I think the advice that I always try to give is really depending on the size of your list um, and kind of how much data you can and can't get and how quickly you can get it. Hmm. From what you see um, with all the you know campaigns that you're running across different clients and even just what you've seen in other people's accounts, to you, what separates uh, a great campaign from a mediocre campaign? You know, like I think everyone's always after uh, sort of like the silver bullet a little bit, but that's not exactly what I'm going for. I'm more wondering, you know, for the for the clients who get consistently uh, exceptional results, you know, maybe 40, 50% open rate or a high click-through rate, or even just a lot of purchases, regardless of the open rate. Um, what really is the difference between those campaigns and the ones that are getting the, the standard kind of benchmark metrics? Yeah, I think it's a couple of things. I think one, like email is only as strong as the traffic that comes through, right? Um, so I think that's like the first thing I want to like preference and say, like, no matter what we do, no matter what you do, if the leads that you're driving suck, you know, it doesn't matter what you send, how great it looks or how awesome it sounds or whatnot, it's going right. to, it's going to perform poorly. So I think that's one really important thing to preference. Um, two, I think people ask me this question all the, all the time. I think it's the wrong question. Um, do I send a, a plain text email or do I send a designed email? The better question is, you know, which one do I try first? You know, how do I try this? Right. How do I know? which one's performing better, right? How do I A-B test this? Because I think, I think there's an argument to send both. And I know a lot of people are very polarizing and has to be plain text or it has to be designed. And I'm really much in the camp of like, it has to be the way that your audience wants to receive it. Um, and, and that really goes back to like, what's your demo? If your demo is millennials, right? Like, you know, using some graphics and stuff like that's probably pretty cool. If your audience is older, right? Like they're our grandparents' age, maybe it should be plain text with large text, right? easy to read, easy to understand, um, super simple, super basic. So I think really to answer your question, um, I think the brands that win are the brands that understand their audience, the brands that have tested different creative or different plain text or different offers um, for their specific audience. Again, we work with 50 clients. 10% hmm. of the stuff I say works for all of them. And 90% of the stuff I say works for part of them, right? So we really do treat every single client a little bit different. Again, within certain categories um, or within certain demos, a lot of things are applicable, right? So again, designing for millennials versus, you know, whoever it might be, there's a lot of parallels there, but it also depends too, like on males versus females, right? Like with males, may maybe you have to do less emojis and kind of like less cheeky stuff with females, right? Maybe it could be a little bit more cheeky and emoji based and graphic based, right? And like aspirational, again, that's not hundred percent accurate. I'm kind of just you know, giving you some context and whatnot. Um, so I'm not sure if that answers your question, but like, I really yeah. think the brands that we win for, A, have a list that's engaged. We can't do anything about that, right? We can basically take the people that they have and try our best to convert them. And when brands have strong people, it makes it really good. We look great. Um, and then it's really testing plain text, designed, a hybrid, the colors, the verbiage, right? All these things. Hmm. So on the flip side then with email flows, which are the automations and sequences, um, what are the different types of flows that you're setting for your clients? And 
I was, I'm also curious if you can sort of like stack rank them on like, these are the absolutes and these are sort of optional and maybe some of the nuances of each one. Yeah. So, um, I kind of mentioned a little bit of this recently. So like the welcome series for non-buyers or like that's a, that's a must. You actually have to have that. Basically people enter their email into a pop-up or some kind of file or an embedded form. Then they get a series of emails that basically educates and nurtures them. And if you promise any kind of discount code or offer, make sure you deliver that in that series, right? So that's obviously a non-negotiable. You have to have a welcome series for non-buyers. People expect it. It drives a lot of revenue. Right, things like the abandoned carts, the exact same thing, right? Non-negotiable drives a ton of revenue, um, pushes people over the edge from kind of consideration into conversion. So it's largely important to do that. Um, and then things like the post-purchase, like the customer thank you. I strongly believe that you have to say thank you to every single person that buys from you. It's really important for kind of reducing buyer's remorse and increasing that bond. Hopefully sets up asking for a customer review and a referral program and whatnot. So those are like the three kind of like must have things. Obviously there's a lot more in terms of some like certain flows that have nuances and whatnot. I'm going to go back to like the replenishment reminder flow, right? That's like the automation that automatically hit people 25 days later, 30 days later, you know, 45 days later, however you set it. Hmm. And again, you want to set that based off the behavior of how often your product is consumed. So for example, Corey, if I'm selling you, let's say a multivitamin, right? You should be taking that daily. It's a 30 day supply. So at day 25, I'm going to want to hit you up and be like, Corey, you're probably about to run out soon. So you can account for shipping. You probably want to order this today. I don't want you to go out a day without your multivitamin, right? That won't be applicable to everyone, but that's a really nice flow to have for something that people need to purchase um, once a month, twice a month, you know, every couple months, right? That type of thing. Um, I went back to the subscription thing, the subscription flow. It's a really great flow. Not everyone's going to have a subscription flow program. So it's a lot smaller of a sliver, but that's a great right. thing. So, you know, get people to buy once, get them to repeat purchase through the replenishment flow after they've bought a few times, tell them that this will make their life simpler if they subscribe and they save, right? You don't have to buy this every month. This will auto get shipped to you. And oh, by the way, you're going to save 10% when you subscribe and shave and save. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. What about the difference between um, abandoned cart and abandoned checkout? I was, I was listening to another podcast you run and uh, I'd never heard that before. So I was wondering if you could uh, tell me a little bit more about it and, and unpack it a bit. Yeah, so uh, the tool that we predominantly use is Klaviyo and Shopify. Um, and with Klaviyo, the abandoned checkout is there by default. And they actually call it the abandoned cart. So most people don't realize that they actually have an abandoned checkout by default. The trigger mm -hmm. there is checkout started or started checkout. Um, and by adding a custom snippet of code, you're able to unlock the abandoned cart, which takes the trigger of added to cart, right? So if someone's on your guys' website, they hit your website, they look at a collection, they look at a product, they add to cart, they start checkout and they buy. Each step of the way, there's friction involved, right? So you have the most amount of people on your website, you have the least amount of people actually that make it through all of those steps we just mentioned and actually buy. So at each step in the funnel, you wanna hit people with content. So if someone adds something to your cart, they're already on your list and they don't start their checkout, you're gonna to wanna to send them an abandoned cart email. However, if someone's on your list, add something to their cart and then they start their checkout, instead you'll wanna send the abandoned checkout. So it's a little bit different content. Uh, the abandoned cart wants to get someone to, to start their checkout, right? The goal of that funnel is to push people into the next step or the goal of the abandoned checkout, obviously, right? If they buy even better. The goal of the abandoned checkout is to get someone, again, one more step, which means buying, right? So that's how I think about these flows is like they each kind of feed each other. If you can get someone to go from adding to their cart to starting the checkout, 
great. We're, we're one step further along. And again, a lot of people will buy from the abandoned cart and they'll take the two steps. They'll start checkout and then they'll buy. Um, so that's not to be mistaken by saying abandoned carts are not for selling. They obviously are, but that's how I think about it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, I, I'd never heard of, you know, it, now, once you explain it, you realize like, oh, actually, yeah, there is a, actually a pretty clear distinction between the two of them of, you know, adding a cart is different than actually starting the checkoff process. But um, having it explained like that makes it a little bit more clear that there should be a different uh, strategy and tactic for each one. Um, now, one of the other, I think, delicate balances that marketers, especially in e-commerce, have to balance is discounts and coupons and promotions and sales. What's your approach? To it? How do you think about um, discounts and, and promotions? Yeah, for us, again, like we have to wear the lens of our clients. So for every single client, they have a slightly different uh, feeling towards discounts. With some clients, discounts make them feel sick, right? Like, no, we'll never discount. We're not a cheap brand, right? Um, so right. they all will have in our notes loaded for that brand, the onboarding, never, ever going to discount, right? Like, so we'll never, ever recommend discounts. We'll never ask for discounts. If they ever want a discount, they'll have to tell us, which maybe happens only during Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and even potentially they're hesitant about that. Um, so with those clients, right, like it's all about showing them the product, the benefits, the value, et cetera. It's not really like, oh, this is on sale, flash sale by in the next 24 hours. So there's different kind of psychology that we have to use there. We can't really use like scarcity or urgency, or we can the fact that like this product is limited edition, right? Um, things like that aside of selling fast, make sure you buy it. There are other things that we have to play on other than, you know, negotiating the price or the rate through a discount. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, right, we have brands that are totally fine being considered a discount brand, right? And they push a lot of volume and they make a lot of money. And a lot of those brands, you know, they will never admit it, but they bake discounts into their margins, right? From the start of the business, they know they're going to be a discount brand and they probably just price it 10% higher than they were going to do it anyways, right? Knowing that 10% off mm -hmm. is going to be used every single campaign or, or most campaigns. And then we have a camp in the middle that are like, hey, if you think a discount will really move the needle, let's use it. But let's do it on a quarterly basis. Or let's use it on a semi-annual basis. Let's not use it in every campaign. So every single brand that we work with is kind of fun and unique and different because we got to pull on different levers um, between price and urgency and all these different types of things. Yeah. And what about keeping a calendar and sort of planning all this out? Because I, I would have to imagine that um, if you're, especially if you're doing, you know, three to five campaigns a week on, on top of all the automations, like you, you need to really... Uh, I mean, are you planning a year out in advance, six months, three months, week to week? Like what's your approach usually for clients? Yeah, it depends. And again, like we have 50 clients. So like in some weeks, right, we're sending like hundred or oh, most weeks we're sending hundreds of campaigns a week, right? Like wow. it's, it's pretty crazy. And then that doesn't include any of the automations or resends or certain things, right? So we do have a calendar for every single client that's individual and customized to them. And again, like everything we do for our clients, everything we do for our clients, you know, brand, everything goes back to like the personalization and the customization. Um, so Q4, I'm really proud of our team. We actually have all the Q4 mapped out. So right around like the first or second week of October, we mapped out all the Q4. So through the end of the year, we have everything planned and mapped out. Um, but in most, it's weird, like during our busiest time, we're the most ahead. We're in most times of the year, we're probably about a month ahead. So like mm -hmm. for, for example, like, um, come December, right. We'll probably have all of January planned, um, that type of thing. I'd say that's not really realistic for a lot of other clients. I'd say normally before they're working with us, they're like literally like an hour ahead, right. They're literally right. planning for like the next hour. 
and if they're good, they're maybe a week ahead and that's no knock to them. They have a lot of things going on. Um, but we are trying to really get them in the habit of like, let's plan, let's plan, let's plan. Makes our life and their life easier. The quality of the work is better. Yeah. Now, one of the other things you mentioned earlier was, uh, you know, in order to uh, achieve great results with each one of your campaigns and your automations, like you need to have a clean, good, uh, engaged email list. Um, one of the other delicate kind of balances you have to make as an e-commerce marketer is um, how aggressive do I be with acquiring new subscribers or acquiring new people onto the email list versus maybe just trying to appeal only to people who are really there and maybe who might be a more high quality user. So how do you think about um, building your email list and, uh, and, and growing without sacrificing quality? Yeah, I think it goes back to a couple things. Like one is like traffic source, right? Like if you're acquiring users from like Facebook and Instagram and Google, it's probably a little bit higher quality than if you're leveraging like affiliates per se, or like hmm. giveaways, you know, per se. So I think like the mechanism of acquisition is really important. Um, again, nothing to knock affiliates. There's a lot of great affiliates. There's also a lot of affiliates that kind of have a lot of average and mediocre stuff, which means your results are going to be average and mediocre. And, and that's okay. And that works for some brands. Um, I really don't think there's a substitute for some of the expensive paid channels, right? Like I don't think you could beat Facebook and Instagram in a while. Everyone complains about it and it's annoying. Like we all still do it because it works. Um, that's one. Like, and then on the giveaway side, right? Like, Typically, you'll get a bunch of emails if you do it right, but people are referring themselves, they're referring all these other people that aren't there. So great, you doubled your email list, right? But now you pay for all these other profiles that are not active and engaged. Um, so I think it's really important to know your metrics in terms of like, what is your customer acquisition cost? What is your you know, LTV? How long does it take to get that repeat purchase, right? To figure out how much you guys can spend and then figuring out like what you guys can spend, right? Will dictate the quality. Like if your product is cheap, in terms of the fact that like you don't have a lot of margin, you have to get really kind of crafty in terms of how you acquire users. And you know that not all the users are great, right? Because maybe you're acquiring them really cheaply on Facebook lead ads where um, maybe you're better off sending people some other mechanism, right? Um, so I think there's a bunch of things. And then in terms of like the discount that you're offering, right? Like you want to give an offer that's like, you know, if you give an offer, like that's good, but not amazing where people expect and are only going to buy if you have a 30% off again, right? Yeah. Yeah. Most of the time people are doing 10%, 15%, 20% off. Um, I'd say 10% is probably the most common for our clients. Hmm. Like, do you have a preferred method for acquiring um, new subscribers and building the email list? Um, you know, there's a lot of different methods, right? You can go the Facebook lead ads way. You could go through giveaways. You could go through maybe pop-ups directly on the site that offer a coupon versus, um, I don't know, a quiz or, or another method. Like, is there something you see personally that you that you either recommend or that you think works better than others? Yeah. So for us, where we sit, like everything we do is like middle to the kind of bottom of the funnel. So we're really dependent on, um, you know, agency partners or internal brands team to actually run the traffic. And for us, our goal is to convert that traffic into an email through the use of forms. So yeah, like a pop-up or a flyout typically is our preferred. And then I'd say like the most common offer is a discount typically in the amount of like 10%, potentially 15% off. That's really the most common. Sometimes we'll do like, you know, enter your email to get a chance to win, you know, a giveaway item or a contest or whatever it might be. Um, but traditionally a 10% off discount is probably the most common through like a, a pop-up. Yeah. Interesting. Um, one of the other things I was thinking about was how do you 
integrate email marketing with some of the other parts of marketing, like advertising or content marketing, SEO, et cetera? Like, um, do you think about the ways that they play together or do they largely stay pretty separate? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, think about it sometimes. I think the, the most obvious use case or a couple obvious use cases, at least for us, is the more money that brands can make from email, the more money that they have to spend and reinvest back into the top of the funnel. So email is a really great way to kind of clean up and convert people um, that weren't going to convert off an ad or weren't going to convert initially. I think email is a really great tool with paid acquisition to work hand in hand to allow people to scale because the more money they make on email, right? The more profitable that channel is, the more money you can reinvest on the top of the funnel. So I think that's one. Two, I think email is a really great channel to promote you know, other mechanisms, whether that be a Facebook group that you have for your customers or a Slack group that you have or following you on Instagram um, or reading your blog content, right? So I think in terms of like content marketing and social, those are probably like the most obvious and the most frequent use cases that we leverage to push people from one place to another, right? We're pushing people mm -hmm. from Facebook to the email list and then we might push them back to Facebook in the forms of like a group. That's typically how we approach that. Yeah. Um, I was wondering about your playbook for Black Friday, Cyber Monday. I'd be remiss if I, if you didn't ask um, how you approached it. And right now we're sort of in the thick of it coming up right until uh, Black Friday as of this recording. But I was wondering if you could walk me through how you think about it, what your strategy is. Yeah, so we're planning on sending seven emails from Tuesday the 24th through, I think it's Tuesday the, the 1st of December. So mm -hmm. 24th of November through the 1st of December, I think it's the date range. Um, don't, don't quote me, I may be wrong on that. Um, but on Tuesday the 24th, we're gonna be hitting people with basically um, like a little teaser email, like, hey, big things coming on Friday, stay tuned. Um, best offer yet, right? Um, on Thursday, I believe it's the 26th. Again, I'm just trying to remember our calendar um, visually, yeah, yeah. but on Thursday, the 26th, um, we're going to hit people with like a Thanksgiving email, happy Thanksgiving to you and yours. Um, as a reminder, tomorrow, Black Friday, biggest deal yet, stay tuned, right? On Friday, the 27th, you know, Black Friday is here. Um, you know, here's our best sale, shop now, items going fast, whatever. I want to get one free, 30% off, whatever the offer is going to be. On Saturday, we'll send basically a follow-up kind of reminder email um, for anyone that did not convert on Friday. Hey, Black Friday weekend is still here. Don't miss our best offer shop now. Um, on that Sunday, last chance, core last chance for Black Friday. Don't miss out on the sale. This only happens once a year. You're not going to want to miss this. Um, hey, it's Cyber Monday. Uh, again, these are emails, these subsequent emails will all hit people that did not convert on any of the subsequent or previous days. Um, mm -hmm. Cyber Monday, new offer, new discount. Sub Corey is us again. You clearly didn't take out our advantage of our Black Friday sale. It's Cyber Monday now. Again, today and today only shop this deal. Um, and then Tuesday, all right, we've extended it 24 hours, shop this Cyber Monday discount, but this is the last. Don't say we didn't warn you, right? So that really like at a really high level, really quickly are the emails we're sending from Tuesday in terms of like hyping and kind of teasing people to Thursday, reminding Friday's the deal we're here saturday follow-up sunday last chance monday sale last chance mm. yeah that's, that's interesting and it, it, that's basically the playbook across all of the, the clients it's that seven day window and they're just basically rinse and repeat wash or going through that same playbook for each one yeah i'd say like 90 95 of them are probably doing that exact same thing we might have one or two others that are doing something unique that didn't want to do a ton of sales or discounting or whatever but that's kind of few and far between 
Yeah. So switching gears a little bit, I would love to hear about a personal project of yours, which is your course on email marketing for e-commerce brands. Um, how's that going? What, what's it been like to launch it? It's been crazy. Um, so a year prior, I'd launched a course with Founder, never ever thought about doing a course, never ever considered doing a course, um, and did that course with Founder a while back. And that course was specifically just on clothes. And the amount of money and the amount of success that people had off that course was just like, mind-blowing like wow you guys your business has literally changed just from flows like i always had in the back of my mind like maybe i'll do like a course that covers the flows that i touched on before like campaigns and segmentation and best practices and helpful tips and all these different things so the new course i have is a lot more thorough and robust than the first one i did this is just kind of me by myself um, i'm calling it kind of like the six pillars of e-commerce email marketing um, and it's been it's been really great like and the reason i did that was twofold. One is I was having to update and redo kind of our agency's like internal playbook and planning and, and training and whatnot. So I was building this anyways. And I started counting all the people that had asked me, Hey, if you have a course, I'd buy it. Or, Hey, are you thinking about doing a course? And once the number hit 50 people, it was like, Oh man, I need to do this thing for my agency. That I'm already working on or planning to work on. I might as wait well accelerate it and offer this and make money for it. And that really incentivized me to like, and lit the fire under like, let's do this. Let's do this big. Let's do the best thing we possibly can. Um, so it's been, it's been great. I launched it probably about five, maybe six weeks ago. And I've had like almost 300 people purchase it so far, which is wow. 300 more people than I thought were going to buy it. That's amazing. What, what was the process like for launching it? You know, I mean, I mean usually I think what, what we find as marketers is like, marketing our own products is a little bit different and yeah. like weirdly harder than you know marketing for other people's yeah. products and clients um so what, what was your strategy going into and, and how did that go yeah so when i was thinking about like what do i build for my team and kind of like you know what would help people i was thinking about like all the buckets that people need to you know optimize and kind of leverage and do to be successful right so um first the kind of the first section is like how do you set up your account how do you name your flows What's the difference between a campaign and flow, right? Like what is the baseline information that my team and anyone taking the course needs to understand and have before they move forward? And then from there, it's like, okay, great. We know we want to do email. We get it. But how do we actually collect emails, right? So there's a section on how to collect emails, how to A-B test forms, you know, examples of forms with their conversion. Great. Now that we have a list, how do we build the flows that are both pre and post-purchase, right? So there's 11 core flows that I go through, six pre-purchase flows, five post-purchase flows that helps kind of these customers and their clients or these agencies or these freelancers for brands that they're working with have a touch point with each person in their journey to kind of push them from, again, considering you and considering your competitors to only thinking about you and buying from you. And then from there, there's about a dozen campaigns that we go into. So I wanted to give people enough kind of ammo to be able to send campaigns as frequently. So there's 12 different buckets that people hit between bestsellers, free product with purchase, product launches. And then it's like, Great. Now, you know, all these things, like, how do you actually segment your list? Right. So I have a video on segmenting your list for Black Friday and Cyber Monday, as well as a video for how to segment your list throughout the whole year. And then the last thing was just kind of some really helpful tips and best practices. So those are really kind of long winded were the things that I thought about that we needed to know for my team to be successful in terms of strategy and execution. And that's kind of how I thought about it. And then with each, within each one, I broke down, well, what are the buckets in this? Uh, and then things as I kept going, I was like, oh, I want to add this or, oh, this would be sick. Um, so it ended up being 49 videos for a total of four and a half hours of content. So I didn't expect for it to be that long. 
Uh, I've basically been doing, you know, marketing, email marketing for about five years now. So it's almost like it took a year and turn it into like an hour, essentially. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. I, I feel like everyone who creates a course always comments on how it ends up being longer than they thought or ends up being more work than they thought because it really is a lot. And especially I think once you start teaching someone something, you realize how much more there is to it than what you had in your head, right? Or what you even wrote down originally is just uh, one of those things that grows over time. Um, and then how did you build the interest for you? I mean, you mentioned that you sort of had a list of people who had asked you or had even told you, hey, if I, uh, if you built a course, I would buy it. Um, but did you also build like a launch list or a wait list? Uh, were you doing any sort of marketing outside of your close network or even on social media? Yeah, so I didn't necessarily build like a pre-launch list other than I just kind of made like a note of like a few people that have asked for it. And I wish I had thought about making that list further because I'm sure I left some people off. Um, but, but essentially what I was doing is I was just kind of dripping and teasing content on social media as I went, hey guys, going to start filming today. You know, my goal is to get this thing done in the next six to eight weeks. Um, hey guys, we're a few days in. I've got four videos completed. Here they are. So I really kind of, you know, not intentionally just documented part of the journey um, and built up like the hype and the excitement behind it. Um, and then I did like a pre-launch technically where the course is $750. I sold it to anyone that bought it in the first week for 600. Cause I, again, I didn't think anyone was going to buy it at all. I wanted to just be like, cool. If I even get one person that did this, this would be cool. Just the fact that someone got value from this. Um, and I ended up selling, I think I did like six figures on the course in like the first week or two um, at the, like the discounted price. So um, yeah, documented it. I have a newsletter that I send, you know, for free every single Monday. I built a lot of trust uh, through that. And I've been publishing content for free. I've never, ever really charged for anything until this course um, for the past like two or three years, right? So I think I had a lot of like goodwill and karma and um, was, yeah, very humbled and appreciative of everyone that supported it. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot of that sort of, um, uh, not even just momentum, but potential that you're building up. It's this energy that you can now, you know, turn into something uh, that you can exchange the trust you've built up for for a long time, right? And into the purchase of a course. And now I'm sure that once people see the course and they go through it, they'll realize uh, even how how much more trustworthy you are and even more. Uh, but is there anything that you learned through creating and launching the course uh, that uh, was surprising in any way? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, yeah, a lot. I'm trying to think of like what specifically, I think for, for one, like what the course I did with Founder, um, the content was really good, but there was more of an emphasis on like the production of it, right? Like it was really well edited and it was really high quality. Um, in this next course, like I really focus hundred percent of everything on like the content itself mm -hmm. where like the, the quality of like the editing and things like that probably could have been a little bit better. The actual content that I give away is exceptional, right? And, and very few people, I think of the 300 people that bought, I think maybe one person's like, hey, I freaking loved your course. Um, just I wish you had edited it more professionally, right? Instead of it being like, a you know, loop recordings. And it's like, sure, that's fair. But really the goal of this course for me was to be super raw and authentic and almost like an over the shoulder look. That was really the thesis of this is like, Corey, if we were in the same room and you were looking at my computer screen, this would be the exact same feeling and vibe you got from the course. Um, so I think like in hindsight, like I thought that people might not like it or might not buy it because it's not like this over the top production, but I frankly didn't want to spend like weeks and weeks and weeks editing this. I wanted to get it out sooner. So people have time to actually implement it for black Friday and cyber Monday and really start mm -hmm. getting value. So I've been kind of like pleasantly surprised by like how little people actually cared about like the fact that like it literally wasn't over the shoulder look, but I think the reason for that is the fact that like there was zero fluff. 
I wasn't trying to sell you anything. I wasn't trying to talk about all these things. It was four and a half hours of stuff that's extremely actionable. And I think people, um, at least in my perspective now, are like willing to see past like the aesthetics if the content and material really is, is valuable. Hmm. So starting to wrap up here, um, and I'd love to take a peek at your own personal swipe file uh, into some of the examples or campaigns that you think uh, were worthy of saving. You know, they could be from clients or from other ones that you've seen around. But could you walk me through uh, a couple of your favorites and just kind of like talk through, you know, what it is that you like about them and um, just kind of like think out loud on what's going through your brain when you look at them? Sweet. I need to actually pull up. Are we going to screen share or just pull up on my end like, so I can look at the one that sent you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you just want to pull them up, um, so and then up uh, right I'll link to them also in the show notes, but we'll have it on video for that uh, version as well. Okay, cool. So for context for the emails I sent over, these are um, some clients that we had worked with. These are um, emails that we had created for them. So the first one that I'm looking at is from a company called Wawa, um, and they make basically you know beverages that have some kind of um, goal or some kind of uh, intent in mind, right? So they have one for staying hydrated, They've got one for recovering for like after workouts. They've got one for, you know, staying awake, right? So we built this really beautiful email for them that showcased all of their flavors and talked about like the benefits of the product and whatnot. So I just think from like an aesthetics, it was really well done. And again, I can't take credit for this. This is one of my designers built this, um, but we kind of concepted it together. So the fact that like this email is just so beautifully done and so minimal, but cool and, um, it performed really well as well. So uh, I think when people see this, they'll be pretty impressed by it. Um, did you have any thoughts on this email? The, the well one, the beverage one, if you're looking at it? Yeah, I, I really loved how it was sort of split into two. Like at the top, there's um, a lot of large text and then there's one large featured product. And then down below, there's a few other sort of variations and you kind of get the same idea. Um, but like I said, I think it's really well designed. I think the copy as well, like it's very minimal and subtle, but, um, your thirst is real, just like our ingredients. It, it has a fun kind of quippy feel to it, but it's also very literal in that it's informative and it's telling people that they're, you know, it's emphasizing the real ingredients, part of the value prop. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Thank you. And I think again, like this really goes back to knowing your, your audience, right? Like, um, you know, this brand like is really polished and their stuff looks really great. Um, and they're kind of like a little bit witty. I wouldn't say like on edge, but they're a little bit like witty and kind of playful with how they communicate. Right. So they're being, you know, they have some puns they use in email. So it's, it's, it's cool. So that was the first one. Um, the, the next one that I'm looking at is the one with the, the sheep on it. It says, yeah. you can't pinch this Merino. It's always green. Um, so this is a company called Ibex. They make a really nice, like Merino, you know, wool type clothing. Um, and they really care about like sustainability and whatnot. So I just thought that, you know, basically that the imagery up, up top was like really, really funny in terms of like, it's just random, right? You open this, you don't expect to see like an animal like this. Um, right? The background is green because we're using the word green. Um, I really like how like the white text kind of overlays on top of the image. Um, and then again, for them, sustainability is important. So we have the call to action to see um, how sustainable we are, what we're doing and whatnot. And then just thought like the text and kind of like the, you know, the value here in terms of like, this is why you buy from us. It's because our quality is great. Or good for the environment, all these different types of things. So I thought this was kind of a really cool, you know, mainly education-based email that had a little bit of selling um, to it. Do you have any thoughts on this email? 
Yeah, I like this one a lot too, because again, I think with the combination of uh, the green background and then the image of the sheep, it, I mean, it really stands out in your, I'm, I'm almost wondering, okay, like, what, what is this about? Like, I, I want to know, um, <laughs> whereas a lot of other emails, maybe it stands out, but you're, you're not that interested. It's almost like too different. Um, so I, I love that the sheep, I love that inc they incorporated that. Um, and I thought it was also refreshing, like you said, that there wasn't um, a product. It's more of an educational kind of welcome email. Um, but even down to everything's on brand, right? So even then it's, it's sort of selling the vision and the mission behind the, the, the brand and the call to action down, the, down there at the bottom is join the herd, right? So uh, very on brand, but again, it's not, um, it's not just educating. It's really selling people on, on the mission. Awesome. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And then going to the last email, um, this is from a company called Stuart and Lau. They make like bags and kind of luggage type products for, for men. Um, and this was essentially kind of like a new product launch where we featured this new bag. Um, what I really liked here is the fact that like this was focused on again, like highlighting the features and the benefits of the product. This is a brand that we had worked with that never discounts, right? So instead here, we have to focus on, you know, this is new and this is exciting. This is the latest and the greatest. Um, and here are kind of some of the things that we are new and improved with this bag. Um, and it's just really kind of clean and crisp and it has really nice mix of um, like product shots, but also lifestyle shots. Hmm. Yeah, this thoughts? one's definitely, yeah, it's, I mean, it's really well designed. It definitely stands out as uh, on brand as far as being very sort of chic and modern. And you have lots of uh, sort of blacks and whites and sort of monotone um, vibe to it. Uh, but yeah, I, I thought just with the, the product placement as well, just it's not just um, a bunch of big images, right? They're very, you can see kind of intricately placed within the email and yeah. well designed in a way that um, doesn't just like look like it was built in a, you know, drag and drop kind of builder that looks like every other email. Yep. No, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Those are great examples. Appreciate you sharing those. Um, and my last question for you is what I call my, my guy Raz question. So for all the things uh, that you share, the audience that you built, the success that you've had both personally with the agency, but also on your client's behalf, how much would you attribute to luck and how much would you attribute to your own hard work? That's a great question, man. Um, I'd say prior to this year, like we were, we were doing really, really well. We were crushing it. And then with this year, um, I actually didn't think that that was going to continue just with everything happening in the world, but it happened to be the fact that we happened to be doing well. We happened to be at the right place at the right time. That really allowed us to go from being like, you know, really good or pretty good to really great. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of it is luck. I think a lot of it's hard work. And I think a lot of it is just timing, right? Which I think goes back to the luck element. So I think for us, again, like we were crushing it, we were doing well, um, but obviously we could have done better. And through this tough time, you know, fortunately for us, it's really been a propeller. Um, so the timing and the luck was definitely on our side where, you know, e-commerce is really hot space. E-commerce even marketing is a really hot space. I mean, we really have just been riding the wave. So I feel very fortunate um, to be in the position that we are in. So yeah, I, I'd say, you know, pretty equal in terms of both, right? Definitely worked hard, spent, you know, tons of weeks working seven days a week, 14 to 16 hour days for probably more than I'd like to admit. Um, but also to like, you know, certain things and certain people I came across in my career, my life really helped form and get me here. And I feel like that was kind of serendipity and luck and whatever other words you want to throw in there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Chase, appreciate you sharing everything today. Uh, you're a wealth of knowledge on email marketing and all things e-commerce. Uh, so thanks for sharing and uh, coming on the show. Yeah, man, of course. Thank you so much. 
Thanks again to Chase for spending all this time with me and giving away all this amazing insight for free. If you can, pop on Twitter and thank Chase for coming on and let him know what you thought. Now, a few big takeaways from me. One, I love how methodical Chase is about his strategy. Everything is worked out ahead of time and to a T. He's got the playbooks in his hand and he works to iterate and improve on them all the time. And it makes you think about how you can standardize and improve your own playbooks. Two, they live and die by the calendar. This is something that email marketers do better than anyone else in marketing. They keep a calendar and they plan ahead of time. And this allows them to get out of the grind of working campaign to campaign day to day and actually get ahead of their work. And this way they can also be more creative and orchestrate campaigns together. And finally, don't forget about the difference between abandoned cart and abandoned checkout flows. Abandoned cart means someone has added it to their cart but hasn't actually gone through the checkout. Whereas abandoned checkout means they've made it significantly through the process, but just haven't pulled the trigger yet. And it's important to have email flows for both of these and to have the nuances and important distinctions for each one. If you've got a question or a takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swifiles.com slash membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.